You know, we are not professionals. But I thank God that although we're not perfect, He is perfect. He is in control. He is good. And I'd be grateful if you'd turn turn in your Bibles, please, to James chapter 1. I've called this message, Hope in a Time of Pandemic. I can think of no place better to be than James 1 this morning. We are without doubt in some very unusual times. In the last week, life as we have known it has been dramatically changed by this virus. Financial markets are struggling, the economy has been disrupted, major universities have been closed down, many sporting leagues have been cancelled, our borders are now completely and utterly closed. If all we're doing in this time is looking at the news, you will be very depressed and very fearful. And I thank God then that he's given us this word. Because it is this word that we need to be giving ourselves to in this season. Why? Well, Psalm 119 verse 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 19, as Simon preached to us at the start of this year, we learn that the Word has a reviving effect on our souls. And for so many of us, we need to be revived. And the reason why it revives us is because 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture, all of it, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be, listen, complete, equipped for every good work. This Bible contains within it how to get through a pandemic. How to lead our lives well and our families well and our churches well. Even through trials. We need this word for encouragement, for strength, for equipping that we may be complete. Even at this time. So let's read together James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is the word of God. This is what he says. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith Produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Lord, we know that there are times in our lives when we need you, but we need others to be you to us. And yet right now you are putting us in a situation where we need to wean off others and desperately need you. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us as we gather today, whether it be by ourselves or in families. Lord, we need you. Lord, would you open our eyes to behold the goodness of your word this morning? Would it have a reviving effect on our souls? Would it have an encouraging and strengthening and faith-building effect on our souls? Lord Jesus, speak to us in your precious name. Amen. 
You know, one of my historical heroes is Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. And he used to have a pastor's college. He used to gather small groups of men around him and he would teach them how to preach, how to be pastors, what it really means to be in ministry. And on one occasion, as he gathered these young men together, he taught to them about preaching. And this is what he said. He said, we must preach as men to men, not as divines before the clergy and nobility. Preach straight at them. It is of no use to fire your rifle into the sky when your object is to pierce men's hearts. For your work is to charge home at the heart and conscience. Yet some preachers remind me of the famous Chinese jugglers who no longer go where everywhere advertised. One of these stood against the wall and the other threw knives at him. One knife would be driven into the board just above his head and another close by his ear, whilst under his armpit and between his fingers quite a number of deadly weapons were bristling. It is a wonderful art to be able to throw within hair's breadth and never strike. And yet how many among us also have the marvellous skill of missing? He was talking to young preachers and explaining to them it's so important when you gather with your churches that you do not miss. You must go after people's heart and their consciences. I thank God that Charles Adam Spurgeon was like that. He modeled that as in the way he led his church. There were no elephants in the room. He would just go straight at them and straight after their hearts and consciences. As a pastor, I want to be like that too. I want to go after people's hearts and consciences. You know, we don't need pastors at this difficult time for us as a nation just going around the houses. We need them to aim up at hearts and consciences. And I thank God that Pastor James was like that. James, the author of this letter that we have in front of us today. See, James was a truly humble man. And we see that and experience that and see that evidenced in the way verse 1 plays out. I mean, this is what he says by way of his greeting. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if James had wanted to show off at this point, if he had wanted to impress, he could have very easily done so. He could have included and informed them, you know what, he is James, the brother of Jesus. He could have identified himself as an apostle. He could have dropped in there that he was the senior leader, the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And he could have sort of just popped in there into the mix that he also chairs the historic and strategic council of Jerusalem. But he doesn't. And he doesn't because he's a humble man and instead he simply mentions that which is of most importance to him. James. A servant of God of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what mattered most to James. See, James had not grown up a Christian. He had grown up as Jesus' biological brother and he wasn't that interested in Jesus. But we discover in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 6 to 7, it says, He, meaning Jesus, He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then, he appeared to Jan. 
It was that appearing when James gave his life to follow Jesus Christ as his Lord and Saviour. It was that appearing that James' life completely changed as he realised, my brother is the Son of God. And he gave his life to Jesus at that point. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what amazed him, that he was saved. And in God's kindness to James specifically, God wanted him through Jesus Christ to become a pastor. He wanted him to care for a group of people, which is why he ended up leading the church in Jerusalem. And it is clear and very evident that James deeply, deeply cares about those to whom he is writing here in this letter. This is what he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. See, it would appear that the people that James is writing to on this occasion are all people that were originally part of the Jerusalem church, but that they've been scattered, dispersed and scattered because of the persecution that the church was beginning to face in Jerusalem as a result of the stoning of Stephen. See, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, this is what we read. It says, And Saul approved of his execution, meaning Stephen's, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostle. That's what it means when we read the dispersion. It is this group of people that used to be together, just like Sovereign Grace Church was just last week, but have now been scattered. It was persecution for them. And as a result, they had been scattered throughout many different places in Judea and Samaria. It would be fair to say that following on from the stoning of Stephen, what ensued for this group of brothers and sisters in Christ was a great trial. This was a difficult time for them. These folk had been unexpectedly, they'd been unexpectedly been made refugees. Their lives had changed abruptly, dramatically, immediately. Their lives had quickly turned around in a way they simply had not seen come. And in an ongoing way, they were actually still suffering persecution for their faith. Not the same as it would have been in Jerusalem, but persecution nonetheless. And as you examine the entire letter of the book of James, you realise one of the effects of that was great poverty. They were being exploited. They were being taken advantage of. By people in Judea and Samaria that they are now in. These dear folk, these brothers and sisters in Christ were forced to dramatically and abruptly relocate. They were exiles. This was no church plan. This was a dispersion. And their dispersion had been painful and dramatic. It involved relocation, persecution, poverty, exploitation, and Listen, to this group of believers in this moment, they are enduring a great trial. This is their COVID-19 moment. Everything changed in the blink of an eye for them. Everything became different. And so James, as their pastor, he writes to them because he loves them. He's aware they're still gathering, it would seem, in small groups in Judea and Samaria. They're still gathering where they can. So James writes this letter and ensures that it gets to them. And this is what he says in verse 2. In great care. Count it all joy, my brothers, 
when you meet trials of various kinds. And that is not what you're expecting him to write, is it? Knowing more of the background. It is a surprising command and instruction that he is giving to them. It would appear that their trials would be the occasion for him writing to them this letter. So he wastes no time addressing them in their trials. Why? Because he's no Chinese juggler. He's going straight after their heart, straight after their consciences. There's no elephant in the room with James. He wants to address them in the midst of the great trial they are going through. And I thank God this letter has ultimately been breathed out by God because there's things we can learn in it too as we go through our COVID-19 moment. Craig Blomberg, in his commentary, insightfully writes the following. He says, frankly, many of us would prefer that this passage were not in the Bible. But it may also be one of the most profound and crucial for truly mature Christian living. And so it is. Frankly, many of us would wish this wasn't in the Bible because we hear the word trial and we think, I don't think I fancy that. But actually, this verse is incredibly needed. It is one of the most profound and crucial for mature Christian living. I thank God that this would have no doubt been brought straight strength and encouragement and faith to the original hearers in the midst of what they're going through. But my friends, this word is not just preserved here so that we can look on historically of how this played out. This word here is divinely breathed so we can look at as what to do in the present. It is this word that will bring us strength and encouragement and comfort and faith in the midst of this trial that we are all now walking through. So I have three points this morning to serve us. All from the text. Number one, the reality of trials. Number two, the purpose of trials. And then number three, our appropriate response to trials. Let's look first of all at number one, the reality of trials. Look down again at verse two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Here's the point. He doesn't say if you meet trials of various kinds. He says when you meet trials of various kinds. James understands only too well trials will take place. It's not a matter of if they're coming. It's a matter of when they will arrive. Alan Gautier, wonderfully in his commentary, says James is nothing if not realistic. For life is a tale of various trials. And so it is. Life is a tale of various trials. A tale that no Christian can escape from. A trial that no Christian is exempt from. And it is a reality that we see only too clearly in the Bible. The Bible does not teach us anywhere that it is our best life now. Now the Bible teaches us that we were made for a person and a place. That person is Jesus and that place is heaven. And right now we're in a race. But within that race we will indeed face trials. Job 5 verse 7 says, For as sure as sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. And so they do. As sure as my life was, troubles fall. Troubles happen to unbelievers all the time in our world. And guess what? They happen all the time to believers as well. No one's exempt. No one escapes. And in all honesty, that's a reality that can be confirmed in various different degrees through our lives as well, can't it? 
in differing ways, to differing degrees, none of us are exempt from trial. Listen, for the Christian, trials are the norm. But here's what we do learn from God's Word, a beautiful truth. It's the reality that for a Christian, these trials are not simply inevitable or accidental or random. No, these trials, they are purposeful. These trials, each and every one of them, including COVID-19, arrives with a divine purpose. This is not just somehow wound up like some type of worldly fruit machine and we just see what comes out to different people. No, each and every trial is allowed by God for divine purpose. He's always up to something. That's why he doesn't say, if you need trials. He says, when you meet trials. And then in verse 3, he goes on to give us the purpose of trials. Look with me then at verse 3. That's my second point, the purpose of trials. This is what he says. Reading from verse 2. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. See, these trials are not random, they are not accidental, they come with divine purpose. And what James is telling us here is, listen, these trials, they are tests. They are tests and they arrive with purpose, and that purpose is growth in steadfastness. They're not accidental, they're not random, though they are given to us by God for a purpose, and that purpose is that we may grow. In our steadfastness. So what James is saying here, he's not saying that God is testing at the genuineness of our faith. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying he's testing us to see if your faith is really genuine. No. What he's saying is God is putting that genuine faith under duress, under pressure, under heat. Why? But so that you may grow. So that you may grow in steadfastness. And he explains in verse 4 that sometimes that just takes time. And this is what he says, verse 4, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's helping us see here that these trials are tests. They arrive with purpose. That purpose is growth in steadfastness. And the ultimate fruit then will be maturity, that we will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know what, as I was thinking about this uh, this week, here's what I thought. I thought, as you examine the fruit, you think, I want that. I want to grow in steadfastness. I want to grow in faith towards the Lord. I want to grow in being dependent upon Him and not dependent on the world. I want to grow ensuring that He is my great treasure. I like the fruit of this. Maturity and completeness, not lacking in nothing. But then the means. Yeah, is there a plan there? I mean, can we, can we go with something else? And James is helping us see, no, actually, the means to which you will get that fruit the means to which that maturity will come are trials. See, David Powerson says it this way. He says, God works on us in the midst of trouble because trouble gets our attention. How true it is. 
It is so easy in our lives to just keep going in our lives at a thousand miles an hour, and it's as if God has shut us down and set us down and said, right, we're going to deal with this now. I'm going to help you now. God tends to get our attention in the midst of trouble, does he not? And in his wisdom and in his grace, these trials then, they are tests that arrive with purpose, and that purpose is growth in steadfastness and ultimately maturity. And pay attention, James wants us to know this. He says in verse 3, for you know. He wants us to know this and, and grasp this and have this burned into our hearts. So, Christians, do you know this? Do you know it? As this trial hits, as this pandemic sweeps the world, do you know that God is in there? See, my friends, I submit to you, if we're going to go well in the midst of this trial, we must know this. We have to stand on this. We have to stand on the Word of God and know this and have it burned into our hearts. You see, so often, the first casualty in a trial is the loss of this. Sadly, the first casualty that so often comes when trials come and our faith gets put under pressure is biblical perspective. Biblical perspective for the trial that we are in. And when that happens, we are always vulnerable, I believe, to a whole manner of different things. First and foremost, we are vulnerable when biblical perspective leaves us. We are vulnerable to speculation and suspicion about God. Speculation and suspicion about his character, about his goodness, about his nearness. Speculation and suspicion as to where he really is in the midst of this, or if he's even bothered or involved at all. And what then comes quickly on the heels of that speculation and suspicion is sinful reaction. Sometimes that looks like anger and complaint and self-pity. How dare you? How dare you treat me like this? I am the center of my world. So how dare you allow this trial to happen in my life? Sometimes when we lose fact of who God is and we start to speculate on his goodness and his character, anger can be the fruit. And other times the sinful reaction, and I think most often the sinful reaction, can be fear. Profound fear and profound anxiety. See, so often when we encounter a trial, it's so easy to quickly begin to be governed by our feelings rather than what we know, isn't it? It's so easy as the news hits and our lives begin to unravel to start to think, not with our minds on the Word of God, but with our feelings as we tune into the news. It's a dangerous place. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. He says, mind and emotions are frequently confused when we find ourselves overtaken by distress and disorientated. This is part of the problem. We think with our feelings. Or more accurately, we let our feelings do our thinking for us. You found that to be true this week? As news hits, how much time have you been spending, time, spending in your Bible as opposed to in the news? Because here's what I find, as you spend time in the news, 
We very quickly feel with our, think with our feelings. Overwhelmed by how this is going to play out. Overwhelmed with all the things this could mean. Mark Dever says it this way. He says, embracing trials doesn't mean that we are to pretend that, we are not, that they are not trials. It simply means that we are not to let our reactions to them be determined by how they first feel to us. Oh, what helpful counsel from Pastor Mark Devil. We must not be determined by how these trials first feel to us. It is so tempting to right now think with our feelings. But my friends, we must think with our minds and we must allow our minds to be riveted on the Word of God. Because at this time there are many things we don't know. We don't really know how this sickness is going to spread. We don't know whether schools will be on or off. We don't know how our economy will we'll blast in this. We don't know how long this whole process will last. But there are many, many things we do know. What we do know is Psalm 23. What we do know is that the Lord is my shepherd. Amen. I mean, what a profound mix of ideas. The Lord, Yahweh, the one that we've been learning about in the book of Exodus. The one who says his name from the burning bush when Moses asks him, what is your name? And he says, I am who I am. He explains to Moses and indeed us that he is the creator king of all. He is self-sustaining. He's above and beyond us in every way, above and beyond nature, above and beyond nations, above and beyond our universe. He is the all-powerful creator king of all. And what he says here is the Lord, this Yahweh, is my, my shepherd. He's intimately involved in my life. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords is intimately involved in my life. David understands what it means to be a shepherd. He understands that it means 24-7 care for your sheep. And what he knows as he examines how God has been to him is the Lord is my shepherd. He protects me. He cares for me. He guides for me. He blesses me. He provides and oversees me, which is why he then concludes something that we can know in our own lives, for surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Why? Well, because the Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. Psalm 46, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. When we stop thinking with our feelings and think with our minds, that's the reality that the Bible preaches to us again and again and again. God is your refuge and strength. He then continues, therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and though the mountains tremble at its swelling. He's saying, I'm not fearing anything. Because the Lord God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Which is why he concludes that we can be still and know that he is God. He hasn't changed. Nothing's changed. Psalm 121. What we can know is that at this time there is one to whom we can lift our eyes to see. He says, I lift, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, Yahweh, 
who made heaven and earth. He's reminding himself that in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of panic, in the midst of potential fears, I know where my help comes from. And my help comes from the great I am. The one who spins the galaxies. The one who created the earth. The one who knows all things and is good in all things. And who surely love and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. He goes on to tell us in that Psalm 121 that the Lord is my keeper. Keeps me. It says the word keep or keeps eight times in that Psalm. The Lord is my keeper. He keeps us. He protects us. He cares for us. How long? Well, for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because he neither slumbers nor sleeps. Even when you are sleeping, God is there keeping you, overseeing you, hemming you in both behind and before, caring for you. And the psalmist says to close, he says, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. How long? For this time forth and forevermore. Robert Davidson, talking about the Psalms, says, Nothing is more characteristic of the Psalms than their emphasis on the intensely personal concern of the Lord for each of his people. It is a breathtaking assumption that the God who controls the whole universe is interested in care for me. Isn't that beautiful? One of the biggest assumptions, the biggest messages through the entirety of the Psalms is that God, Yahweh, the great King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is interested in care for you. It's beautiful. You know, in the midst of this trial, in the midst of COVID-19, there are many things we don't know. But my friends, there are many things we do know. What we do know is about the character and the goodness and nearness of God. What we do know is that He is good. He is our shepherd. What we do know is His mercy will never leave me nor forsake you. What we do know is He is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. What we do know is that we can be still and know that He is God. What we do know is that we can lift our eyes to the hills in this time, to our keeper. One who will neither slumber nor sleep, but one who will never let us go, both now and forevermore. And what we do know is that these trials, he is in. And these trials then are tests that arrive with purpose. And that purpose is growth in steadfastness, ultimately leading to maturity. We must not think with our feelings right now. We must think with our minds and feast on the word of God to then inform our feeling. So then how do we respond? Finally, point three. Our appropriate response to these trials. See, make no mistake, my friends, according to scripture, our response matters. It really matters. See, our growth to maturity is not based upon just sustaining yourself through this trial. Our growth in maturity is not based on the number of trials nor the intensity of trials. Our growth is based on how we react to the trials. I think the only thing more grieving than watching somebody go through a trial is watching them go through a trial and then discover it was a complete waste of time. 
Because they did not respond to it in a way that God had called them to. And so instead of maturity, it actually made them more distant from God. More second-guessing of God. More speculative about God. If we really want to grow in maturity before the Lord, it is important that we respond appropriately to the Lord in trial. C.J. Mahaney, the founder of our family of churches, says it this way. He says, what we know about the divine purpose for a trial makes all the difference in informing our understanding of the trial. But how we actually respond to a trial will ultimately determine whether we actually experience the divinely intended purpose of that trial or not. It's possible to waste a trial. It's possible to miss the point of the trial. It's possible that even though the storm comes and the storm will go, that the entire time has been a waste for us personally. What a devastating reality. See, what trials give us is a crossroads moment. They give us a crossroads moment that we have only one of two choices. One choice is that in the midst of this trial, we look up. We look up and we see Him there and we know His goodness and strength and sovereignty. And accordingly we are able to still our hearts and as we still our hearts we grow in steadfastness and maturity. The other option is that as the trial comes we start to speculate about God. We start to question God and we react to Him sometimes with anger and self-pity and disappointment. Or we react to him with fear. Either way, we start to move away from him. One way we move towards the Lord and grow. One way we move away from him and diminish. But what we must understand is in trials, quite simply, we never stay the same. Tim Keller soberly captures this point in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He says the following. He says, the stakes are high here. Suffering will either leave you a much better person or a much worse person than you were before. Trials and troubles in life, which are inevitable, will either make you or break you. But either way, you will not remain the same. Suffering Grace Church, either way, through COVID-19, you will not remain the same. This trial gives you a crossroads moment. And everybody has to make their choice. One choice is to look up and see Him there in His goodness and grace and mercy. And understand, He will use this trial in my life for my good. So that I may grow in steadfastness and faith and confidence in Him as a King of Kings. The other path is I'm angry with Him. How dare we do this? How dare we allow this? Or we just respond in fear. And so we spend the entirety of our life, not looking at this, we spend the entirety of our life on Facebook and, and on the news and on Sky News just trying to work out what's happening all the way around the world. We need to prepare for this. But our hearts aren't still. Our hearts are fearful. And our hearts are fearful ultimately because we look at God and say, you have not got this. You're not in control of this. You've left us, you've abandoned us, I'm going to sort myself out. You know what fear says? Fear more than anything is acting as if God is dead. He's not dead. 
That's why he tells us, be still and know that I am God. I'm in this video. I'm there with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am your refuge in this time. Lift up your eyes to the hill. He doesn't say, listen, when panic comes, lift up your eyes to your television. No, he says, lift up your eyes to the hills. For where your help will come. So, our response to trials makes all the difference as to whether we grow through this trial or not. So, how are we meant to respond? Well, he tells us in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. How do we embrace these trials? How do we embrace it in a way that it will go well for us? What are we to do in our lives to ensure that we may grow through this season to maturity rather than squander in immaturity? What are we meant to do? Well, he tells us, count it all joy. You know, I think those four words are some of the most misunderstood words possibly in the entire Bible. Misquoted, misrepresented, misunderstood as to what on earth do they mean? Do they mean I'm just going to walk around with a smile on my face, whatever's happening? You go, hey, it's fine, you're good. No. No, it doesn't mean that. Let's look at it. First word, count. Count. Count speaks of considering and reconsidering and assessing. What James is saying then here is, listen, if you truly want to bear fruit in your life, if you want to endure this cross, if you want to endure this trial and exhibit God-given fruit in your life, then you must first consider and assess and reconsider this trial from a biblical perspective. That's what we've been doing this morning. Examining COVID-19 in the midst of a biblical perspective. And when you count the trial that way, when you consider the trial that way, you realize God is in this. He's in this for my good and His glory. He's in this to teach me something. He's not left us. He's not forsaken us. He is our ever-present help in time of need. But He's up to something here. So He says, count Consider, reconsider, assess, count it. Small word, two letters, but it encapsulates so much. I think Mottier in his commentary says it this way. He says, the small word it contains within it the whole of life. It sums up in its tiny compass every one of the various trials which the present may contain, the future may bring, or the past may keep stored up in memory. For there is no trial, listen, there is no trial, no great calamity or small pressure, nor overwhelming sorrow or small rub of life outside the plan of God. That's beautiful. There is so much contained within that word, it. Because all that is contained there is, is, is the great calamities of life, the small pressures of life, the overwhelming sorrows, the small rubs of life. They're all involved in that word, it. Everything that takes place in your life, whether it be major or minor. He says, count it. Consider, assess it. Think of God and what he's saying to you in light of what you're going through. And then count it all Joy. 
I think this is the word that maybe is misunderstood the most. Don't want you to misunderstand self-regrets. See, please don't misunderstand here. James is not suggesting here that there should be therefore be no, no, there should be an absence of sorrow and sadness and grief in the midst of genuine suffering trial. He's not saying that there should be no sorrow, no sadness, no grief, whatever the trial comes. He's not saying that. Not at all. That's why we have psalms of lament. Men that are struggling, that are walking through things that bring sorrow and grief and difficulty to their hearts. Jesus himself, when he heard that Lazarus had died, it says, Jesus wept. He was broken. He was, he was grieved. It's his friend. James is not saying here, as you walk through this trial, there should be an absence of any sorrow, any sadness, or any grief. Likewise, James is not suggesting here, listen, or saying here, feel it all joy. Whatever happens, be happy. Whatever takes place, just be happy. It's going to be good. He's not talking about that. He's not saying, listen, all Christians, smile, be chirpy, let's start laughing, whatever's going on, because it'll be good. He's not saying that. But what he's saying here is simply this. That if we look at the horizontal, if we spend time looking at the horizontal of this trial, then it will be tragic and difficult day after day after day. But if you look up and you see him there in his goodness and his majesty and his sovereignty and you understand he is caring for you and you understand he wants to use this trial in your life, for your good and his glory, that you may mature. And like that, count it all joy whenever you face trials of various kinds. Trials will come. If you look horizontal, all you will feel is anxiety and fear and difficulty. But if you look up, you'll be aware that even in the midst of the sorrow and challenge, he is at work. The goodness of Jesus in the greatness of God. He is at work in your life. And so count it all joy, my brothers. Why? Because He is present. He is at work. Keep looking up. My friends, our reaction to trials, our response to trials, matters. None of us will be able to remain the same. They will either make you or break you. So for each and every one of us, we have to choose the path. Looking up, that will bring maturity and strength and steadfastness. Or looking away, which will bring anger and self-pity and fear. None of us will stay the same. We have to make our choice. And I want to encourage you as a church... Choose life. Choose Christ. Choose the Lord. You know, this COVID-19 crisis, it will give us, I think, evangelistic opportunities. But as Brendan said wonderfully in the notices, I think this time will give us wonderful opportunities with people that don't know the Lord. I had my haircut this week, and the guy that, that said to me, in fact, he just arrived, I just sat down, and he said to me, oh, just to let you know, Myers closed upstairs because we had two coronavirus cases. And I'm like, 
okay, well, let's just make it quick. Let's just make it quick. Let's just get it done. And I'll go. And he said, oh, yeah, man. He said, he said, I think I've worked it out. I think God's just really angry with us. And he's just readdressing it because people have been ignoring it for years. Look, how interesting that people that don't know Jesus are starting to realize there's something in them. We are not the first of churches to walk through epidemics and pandemics. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he was once addressing his church in the midst of the cholera epidemic in the 1850s. And this is what he once quoted in his message. It says, but it is much to be feared that a constant run of prosperity, perpetual peace and freedom for disease may breed in our minds just what it has done in all human minds before. Namely, security and pride, hedonism and forgetfulness of God. Not wild. Is that not Sydney? People have forgotten and given themselves to security and pride and hedonism and forgetfulness from God. He then continues, It is a most solemn fact that human nature can scarcely bear a long continuance of peace and health. It is almost necessary, he writes, that we should be salted with affliction every now and then, lest we putrefy with sin. May God grant that we have neither famine or sword, but since we have this pestilence in a very slight degree, it becomes us to ask the Lord to bless it to the people, so that a tenderness of conscience may be apparent throughout the multitude, and that they may recognize the hand of God. Already I've been told by Christian brethren laboring in the east of London that there is a greater willingness to listen to gospel truth. Oh, my friends, would that inform our hearts and our prayers in this season as we engage with people that don't know Jesus? People, I believe, will start asking questions real quick. And as Peter tells us, we need to be able to give an account for what we believe in that moment. If we are modeling gentleness and strength, not being obnoxious with it, but comfort and strength, understanding God is in this, oh my gosh, we will, we will reveal a light to the city in this season if we display that. Time of panic. Engaging with a church of faith. There will be time in this epidemic, through this pandemic, but for gospel opportunities. My friends, I also want you to understand there is much time for internal opportunities. God is in this. And he is in this to help us grow in steadfastness and ultimately then to maturity. So I want to urge you, folks, don't waste this trial. Don't waste it. Embrace it. And keep looking up. And count it all joy as you realize he is in this. For my good and his glory. And with all glory then go to him. Let's pray. Lord, your word is powerful and your Lord, your word does steady our tumultuous hearts. Your word has a wonderful strengthening effect on us. It brings hope to us. It brings encouragement to us. Lord, I pray for the dear folk of sovereign grace. In this season, would we be men and women hungry after your word? Not taking the temperature of our lives from the news, but informing the temperature of our lives from your word. Lord, you are our ever-present help in trouble. 
You are our strength and our refuge. So may we run to you. And as we run to you, may we grow in steadfastness. May we grow in hope. May we fall in love with you during this season all over again. Because you are good. And you are good. In Jesus' name.